Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> Romans chapter 5. What an amazing chapter. I was uh, earlier this past week, um, I was at a biblical counseling conference for, uh, for a couple days and I ran into uh, one of our speakers that we had here a couple years ago. I was actually on the same plane with him and he was asking me, what, what are you preaching uh, right now? Where, where are you at? And I told him, I'm in the book of Romans. I'm in Romans chapter 5 and he just lit up because it was the it was the Brad Bigney guy, the guy who was really animated and crazy all over the state. So he lights up over anything, but he said, Romans, uh, I preached through Romans at least twice, and I have no idea how long I was in Romans chapter 5, and I concur with the brother's uh, enthusiasm. Chapter 5 of Romans undertakes a new topic in this, in this great letter, and its overarching theme is a believer's assurance. And today we're going to see how the love of God provides that to us. And when you think about that, that title or even that topic, it would be hard to find a more inexplicable and encouraging topic than, than God's love. I mean, the love of God is the greatest and highest thought we could ever have. There have been volumes of books written about it, thousands of, of hymns and and who knows how many sermons over the, over the centuries. The most well-known verse in all the Bible is about God's love. John 3, 16, for, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And, and as is the Greek word that everybody, every Christian recognizes at least, agape, which, which means love. And when you think about it, in one sense, the, the topic is incomprehensible. I mean, how do you describe something so majestic, so magnificent, it describes God himself? And the Bible says, God is love. I mean, how, how do you describe God? The topic is exactly like the, the hymn writer, Frederick Lehman, uh, Lehman wrote in his song, the, the Love of God. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made... Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. You know that song. I was reading this past week, and I found uh, James Montgomery Boyce thought of that very same song when he was uh, preaching Romans chapter 5. What you may not know is, is uh, Lehman says he wrote all of that hymn except that last stanza, which is probably the, the most well-known. He added those words later after they were found scrawled in pencil on the wall of a patient's room in an insane asylum. When the man died, they went in to clean out his room and they found on the wall those words written. Now, I don't know what he was in the insane asylum for, but those are the most lucid thoughts that any human being has ever had. I mean, he's right. God's love is something that's hard for us to comprehend, difficult for us to describe, and, and far too high a thought for us to, to detail. I mean, 
when we think about it, when we think about the love of God, we think we get it. We, we read a passage or we find a story in the Bible, maybe like Mephibosheth when David invites uh, him to sit at his table. And, we, and we, we think we've grasped it only to kind of leak out of our fingers like, like, like sand. That's because the love of God is unique. And unlike any love that we have, have ever known. And yet... Paul just told us in verse 5, what we looked at last week, that that very love, the love of God, has been poured out in our hearts. In chapter 5 to chapter 8, Paul begins to summarize the promises and privileges that we have because we have been declared right with God. We've been justified. And the last time, Romans 5, 3 through 5, declared that trials are not an evidence of, that God's against us, for the Christian, they're actually a confirmation of His presence because what happens in us and what happens through the, through, through the trials. Christians are not immune uh, from the effects of the curse. We, we undergo trials just like everyone else, but that should not bring into question our standing before God. In, in fact, it's the opposite. It's the opposite of what the world thinks. The faith that activates in the trouble and what the trouble does in us actually produces a greater assurance that we are the, the Lord's, which produces these, provides these three reoccurring blessings that we saw last week. We, we boast in trouble because it produces endurance and character, and then character produces hope. And we also have help in, in, in the troubles, which, which assures us that we'll not be put to shame by trusting in God. And that help is the person of the, of the Holy Spirit who pours out God's love in, in our hearts. His very presence is the evidence that, that we'll, we'll not be put to shame. And the experiential love that, that we sense because of the Holy Spirit is, is another evidence. The love of God is poured out at the very beginning of your conversion and it remains during our entire Christian lives. Romans 5, 5 describes it like a spring that, that just bubbles up in, in your heart. But what, what is God's love? I mean, how would you define it succinctly? I mean, is it a verb or a noun? I mean, is it like human love? Um, but maybe human love is just lesser. I mean, do we have anything on earth that we can compare to it? I mean, I can vividly remember coming to Christ and hearing preachers use illustrations, uh, trying to explain the love of God, like, like a, like a man whose son was, uh, was his, his leg was stuck on the railroad tracks and the, man had, the father has to choose between rescuing his son or, or pulling the lever to keep the oncoming train from going over the, over the cliff. And of course in the illustration the man chooses the, the train and, and his son dies in the process. Or, or the father that discovers his child has had the only antibodies in, in the world to cure people from a deadly and painful disease. And so when he takes his child in to offer help, the, the doctor informs it that the procedure to extract the antibodies will, will kill his son. And of course the story then builds up to a climax. So the question's asked, what would, what would you do if it was your son? Followed with, well, that's what God did with, with his son. You, you've probably heard other illustrations um, over the years. But how does the Bible describe God's love? Well, he gives a perfect description of it right here in Romans 5. And Paul's going to teach us about it today. And once again, 
It's to build your assurance. I mean, he knows, Paul knows, that once you truly grasp God's love based upon this description here, it will be impossible for you to doubt your security ever again. I mean, it provides a ground and a foundation for your assurance. It's so extensive and, and so wide, it's impossible to reach the edge. You, you, you can't fall off of it if you, if you grasp it here in, in Romans 5. I mean, if it were a wall, it would be so high, it would reach the very sky, and you could never climb over it. If it, if it were an ocean, there, there would be no bottom to, to the love of God. Uh, or as our songwriter says, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star. It reaches to the lowest hell. I mean, Lehman says it's indescribable, the love of God. But that's exactly what Paul does here in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through, through 8. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he describes God's love to us. Verses 6 through 8 are actually a follow-up to Paul's encouragement that the love of God has been poured out in our heart, and he now explains the nature of that, of that love. What is that love like that's poured out in your heart through the Holy Spirit? And, and he gives us an exposition of the love of God. He, he tells us what it's like, how it's expressed, toward whom it's expressed, and how it's compared to the other kinds of love that, that, that we know. Verses 6 through 8 of Romans 5 is the ground for the love of God that he just mentions in in verse, verse 5, it's the well itself. He said it's, it's a love that is abundant and profusely poured out in our hearts. We experience it through the presence of the Holy Spirit, and now he describes it. There's an explanation of it in verses 6 through 8. And then the result of the, the love of God in verses 9 through 11, which we won't get to today. We've been reconciled, and we'll, we'll escape wrath. We'll, we'll go there before, before we're out of Romans 5. But the love that we experience in our heart originates from God's heart. And Paul shows us how his heart provides that through three explanations of the nature of, of God's love. Three explanations of the nature of God's love. It's expressed toward the undeserving, in verse 6. It's extraordinarily unlike human love or anything that you could compare to it in verse 7, and it's emphatically demonstrated by the cross in verse 8. Three verses, and each verse has a, has a point. It's toward the undeserving, it's unlike human love, and it's demonstrated by the, the cross. Let's look at the, the first description here. The first description of the love of God is it's expressed toward undeserving people. That, that's what verse 6 says. It's a gracious love, it's a timely love, it's a vicarious love, and it's, a, it's Trinitarian love in, in verse 6 and the verses surrounding that. Look, look if you would at verse 6. Paul says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now, we always pay attention to the, to the word at the beginning of the sentence, and you should hear. It's a, this little word for, which tells us this is actually an explanation of what he just said. And so you back up to verse 5, and, and you get the on-ramp. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God, there's our topic, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us 
For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Here's the the description of that love, the nature of, of that love. He picks back up on his theme of assurance, which is all about hope. And he says here, the evidence of God's love, here's what it's like. He starts to explain it. And he starts to explain it by pointing to the kind of people to whom this love is expressed. I mean, Paul emphasizes the unique nature of God's love by describing in detail the objects of His love. You see that? For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Not good people. The objects are not good people, not worthy people, but but weak and ungodly and sinful people. He has love for undeserving people, people who are His enemies. So God's love is described as expressed toward the the undeserving. Paul says, "What what does God's love look like? God's love is a gracious love. He didn't die for good people. He died for this kind of people. He expresses His love toward toward these kinds of uh, uh, people. And, And he uses four terms in this section to describe them, describe the object. The first term is, is, is weak or, or helpless. Verse 6, For a while we were still helpless at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now, now when you hear that word helpless, don't think sympathetic thoughts. Like, like a lost puppy who's helpless and can't find their way home. Or a, or a bird with a broken wing and, it, and it's helplessly flopping there. And, it, and the rest of it, it works. Think of an African lion that's tasted human blood that now can't stop eating people. Or a heroin addict that that keeps returning to the dealer because she has no strength to stop. That's the idea of this word. It's a a moral weakness, not a physical weakness. So the word weak means. It's a very strong term. It means someone that has total uh, total incapacity for, for good. I mean, the word means without moral strength, to be devoid of any spiritual ability or even spark. It's, it's people who are not just lacking good, people who are incapable of, of good. I mean, this word describes more than our term human depravity. This word asserts human inability. I mean, God doesn't love people that just need a little nudge or people that are, who are seeking Him and just need help finding the light. To, God puts your hand on the light switch and then you, you turn it on. I mean, he's expressing his love toward people who are powerless to do even one small thing to please God and to gain salvation. They're morally pathetic. That's a really good way to describe this this, this word. But he uses a second word. Look at verse 6 again. He, he, He uses a word that goes along with this weakness. He says God loves ungodly or godless people. For while we were still helpless, morally pathetic, at the right time... Christ died for the ungodly. Now, now let that sink in a, a, a minute. Ungodly people. That, that's how you and I are described before Christ. That, that's the object that, that God will express this, this gracious love toward. I mean, ungodly in its simplest form means unlike God. Ungodly disconnected from from God. Uh, Paul's already used this term back in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Jan Boy said, not just people who are unlike God, this verse says that these, these are people who are in fierce opposition to God. Here is the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against our ungodliness and unrighteousness. And so as God attempts to reveal himself, we, we want nothing to do with God. We are, we are un-God. We, we, we don't want anything to do with him. We're anti-God. God is God and because he is, we, we oppose him, this verse says. Mankind is without God. He's Godless. And God expresses His love toward people who are without God and, and opposed to Him. But he, but he even uses a third term. You have to go to verse 8 to see this one, or 6, 7, and 8. Look at verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So here's a third term. Morally bankrupt. Morally pathetic, somebody who's godless, who's opposed to God, and now here is a sinner. A sinner is somebody who's an offender, someone who's missed the mark, somebody who's not good or righteous. The, the godlessness of, of man breaks the first half of the, of the Ten Commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and, and strength, but we're godless. And then this word... A man's sinfulness breaks the second half of the Decalogue. And therefore, we're guilty of all the law. All Ten Commandments have been broken. And notice the, the sinner here in verse, in verse 8 is contrasted with the good and righteous man in, in verse 7. Look back at verse 7. So Here's the, the middle verse in our sandwich. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare die. Notice that starts with four. So it's, it's explaining what's in verse 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What do you mean by helpless or ungodly? Well, it, it's somebody who's not righteous and somebody who's not good. But here's the contrast. It's not like human love, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in verse 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So a sinner is neither good nor, nor righteous. He's guilty. He's a divine criminal. He's disinterested in God's ways. And, and yet Paul's not done. We have to go out of our verses, but still in this section to, to see the fourth phrase. It's in verse 10. We'll review it at verse 10. This section goes from verse 6 all the way to verse 11. Verse 12 starts a new thought. But verse 10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's someone who's on the opposite side in, in the war. Remember how this chapter starts? We, we now have peace with God. God has declared himself at peace with us. And before that, we were, we were enemies. We were on the other side of the, the war. God expresses his gracious love to his adversaries, to his... To his opponents. I mean, we were on Satan's side. That's what this word means. And Boyce said, like the devil, we would drag God off his throne if we could. We want nothing to do with him. And so God expresses his love toward incapable, godless, sinful enemies. It's the object of God's love. I mean, that's the kind of people that, that Christ died for. That, that's what his love is like. It's a, it's a gracious love. And, and notice it says that this love was expressed 
while we were yet sinners. While we were, we were still all of these things. I mean, not after we were changed or, 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 or during, uh, you know, during some reformation, but, but during these conditions, while we were still these things. Human inability, weakness, coupled with sinful fruit. Godless, sinful enemies. There's the passive part and the active combined. We, we, were, we were unable to produce any moral good, and God loves us anyway, and what we did produce was a godless life, a, a sinful life. It's the root of our depravity and the fruit that, of human beings before they, they came to Christ. Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, We were sinners, hateful creatures, ugly, foul, vile, despicable, and desperate, hurling insults. A sinner is an abomination to God, a monstrosity in God's universe. How's that for your self-esteem, huh? And it's only, though, whenever you realize this, Lloyd-Jones says, that you will follow the apostle's argument here about God's love. You will not understand God's love if you do not see yourself that way and follow his argument. I mean, isn't it true? He who has been forgiven much, loves much... (laughs) And that's what Jesus explained to his disciples in, in Luke 7 about the sinful woman. You remember the sinful woman who comes in and, and breaks the costly vial of perfume on the Lord's feet? I am that woman. And the disciples are indignant, and Jesus says in Luke 7, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she did this. Well, that's why she loves much. But the one who is forgiven little, who thinks that they have been forgiven little, they love little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. What a great statement. The more you realize how sinful you truly are, the greater the gospel looks. And the more thankful you are for the gospel. And the deeper that you understand God's love. The blacker the paint, the deeper the red letters seem. And don't forget... Paul's goal in these verses, he's trying to help us comprehend God's love. And so he uses our condition as a tool. One writer said, consider the character of the people for whom this was done, and it will help you grasp God's love. I mean, you can see God's love by what he did. He died, John 3, 16, helps us see God's love, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But Paul says here, you can also see God's love by looking at the people he died for. He died for the ungodly. And that's not a normal kind of love. I mean, there's nothing in the object to justify the love. That's Paul's point. None whatsoever. I mean, Joel James says now, said uh, about this verse, I've done a lot of premarital counseling in my life. And I've never sat with a couple and heard one of them say they were attracted to their partner because of any of these things listed here in verse 6. I saw him and he was just such a sinner that I immediately knew I wanted to marry him. Or I I took one look at her and she was so morally helpless and ungodly I knew I had to make her my wife. He, He said, not one, never. You never do that. In fact, it's just the opposite, isn't it? We only want to see the the good in someone that we're attracted to, and we're often blinded to the bad. And both people are helping that along because we we try to hide the really bad stuff, don't we? I mean, in every encounter, we put our best foot forward. We want to make a a good first impression, and then we want to to keep that impression. 
We don't air out our dirty laundry to somebody because we want them to love us. We want them to like us. You typically don't get the fine print until after the ring. (laughs) But that's not the case with God. He knows all. He sees all. There's nothing hidden from his sight. He knows the, the fine, fine print. He, he knows what's lurking in the dark corners, what's, what's under the rug. And he loves anyway. That's the love of God. And it has nothing whatsoever to do with you. So don't think God loves me and feel extraordinary because of that. Or think amazing thoughts about yourself as, as somehow you're special because of it. Think amazing thoughts about him. I mean, you see Paul's point here. It is that God's love is not attracted to anything in you. If it was, you wouldn't be loved by Him at all. You see, that's the difference between a human kind of love and God's kind of love. Human love is attractional love. Like the opposite of Joel's premarital example. I see something in you, or I see what... You may become, I see some spark in you, therefore I'm attracted to that good or the future good, and I love you because of it. That's not the love of God. God's love, if it was based on that, would be repelled by us because we're helpless and ungodly and sinful and enemies. God's love is detractional, if that's even a word. I mean, He loves because He loves I mean, love comes forth from the character of God without any gravity from us to to draw it, uh, without anything to attract it. I mean, try to think of the most repulsive person you can. I mean, someone that just revolts you. and Maybe not someone by name, but a type of person. A proud and arrogant woman or a bully or a sexual sinner that's just doesn't care what, what anyone one thinks. And once you have that person in your mind, God's love is not influenced by that in any way. It's not attractional love. It's something that, that goes forth from Him. His love comes from Him, and it's not hindered by, by the object of His love. Now, the wrath of God is attractional, So God is angry with those wicked people that you you may be repulsed by every day. His wrath abides on the the sinner. The more sin, the more wrath is is stored up. And He's not pleased with with wickedness in any way, in in anyone. But, But His love is not expressed based upon what they are or what they do. It's free love. It's sovereign love. It's it's by choice. That's surely a special kind of love, isn't it? To see you dirty and filthy. And love you anyway. I remember hearing the testimony of a missionary friend of mine, his very first experience on the mission field. And this was jungle missions where you, you find an unknown tribe and, and a clearing and then you, you make contact and, and they made contact and they were finally able to get in. And upon seeing a native up close for the first time, he said the man was hideous. Um, Skinny and stained fingers and tribal tattoos all over his face and, and his body, long wooden piercings and feathers in his ears and in his nose. And right in the corner of his chin was a, was a hole with a wooden plug and it was, was leaking green spit from the coca leaves that, 
that he was chewing and what was on his chin ran down his chin, down his entire chest to his nether regions, which were largely uncovered. And the missionary said what welled up in his heart was he, he loved the man instantly. That's the love of God in you whenever that happens. When you love somebody, that there's nothing about them that, that attracts you. But the love of God for you is described here in these verses. It's a love that sees all of your sin and loves you anyway. What, what a gracious love. But it's not just gracious. It's also there whenever you, whenever you need it. It's a, it's a timely love. It's a gracious love and it's a timely love. Look if you would at verse 6 again. For, explaining the love of God, for while we were still helpless, there's the gracious part, at the right time. Here's the timely love. Christ died for the ungodly. Paul says this love was at the right time. Or at the appropriate time. So what does that mean? I mean, you say, I, I wouldn't have thought the, the clock had anything to do with God's love. But it does. It's a time uh, either referencing to Christ, His coming, or, or it's a time referred to us. I mean, Jesus Christ came into the world at the right time, referring to God's moment when, when He sent His Son into the world. Or it's referring as, a, as perfect timing related to our weakness or because of our weakness. That, that's the, the very moment. Christ came exactly when we needed Him because it was abundantly clear there was no way for us. And frankly, I'm not sure that we need to choose between those two things or put too much daylight between them because both of them are true. I mean, it was God's perfect timing in history, meaning at a particular point. When, when God chose, He would enter the world. It was the, the right moment. What made it the, the appropriate moment or the right moment? Well, He tells us it, it was when we were without strength. When man had proven beyond a shadow of a doubt there was no way he, he, could, he could save himself. I mean, think about all of the, the time that passed in the Old Testament from creation up until Christ. I mean, you, you've read a Bible or you've probably held it a lot. And, and you hold it up and there's more on the left-hand side and the Old Testament side than, than there is in the, in the New Testament side. And when you read the, the Old Testament, Genesis is written with this, with, with a sense of building suspense. I mean, God promised Eve a seed would be the answer to the fall, creation, and then the fall, and then, and then judgment. But then this echo that, that God will, will straighten out the mess. And then with each new scene, we're, we're asking with Eve, is, is this the one? I mean, is he the answer? Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. And Eve says, I've begotten a man from the Lord. And, and what she's saying is, meaning, is this the one? <laughs> Was he the solution? No. And then Noah and the flood. One righteous man that the Lord saves out of all the people on the earth and he destroys everyone else. Is he the one? And Genesis 9 gives us the answer after this chapter of recreation language about being, in fruitful, being fruitful and multiplying again and filling the earth. It, it says that, that Noah got drunk and his son sinned. You weren't the answer either. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, every single one of them were liars. Abraham lied, Isaac lied, Jacob lied, and they were saved by faith alone. 
in fact, in the, that great pinnacle of Abraham's obedience where he takes Isaac to sacrifice him, God declares on Mount Moriah he would provide his own lamb, not Abraham. Moses in the law, Moses strikes the rock and can't even enter the promised land. And the, and the Israelites break the law uh, over and over so many times we get tired of reading about it. David in the kingdom, is he the answer? I mean, is he the one, the man after God's own heart? Maybe, maybe he's the one. Bathsheba, Uriah, numbering of Israel, Solomon. I can give you a thousand reasons why he was not. 700 in one hand and 300 in the other. I mean, no one was the answer. And sin reigned in the, in the Old Testament. That is up until the right time when Jesus Christ came. So who was God's answer? Paul says Jesus. And at the perfect time in history, He showed up. Most of the time when Paul uses this phrase, it has to do with the, with the, with the advent. And he's already used it back in chapter 3, talking about the gospel. Romans 3, 25 and 26. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. That is to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, in the Old Testament, He passed over the sins previously committed, meaning that He didn't bring immediate judgment. Why? For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, at, at the appointed time, the righteousness of Christ. So that in Old and New Testament, and in all times, God would prove that He was both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Christ came into the world at God's appointed time to save sinners and make an atonement for them. And you say, what does that have to do with the love of God toward me, specifically? And Paul says everything. It means that God's love for you was not an afterthought. It means it wasn't a reaction. It means it wasn't plan B. It means that it was planned in every detail, even down to the very moment in history when Christ would come and offer Himself a, a, a ransom. I mean, did you ever think about that? That your forgiveness was planned? Did you ever think? I mean, you really don't think you just woke up one day and found Jesus on your own, right? I mean, Paul says, not only did He find you, He planned to find you. And God's love stretches back into eternity and stretches ahead as far in the, in the opposite direction. It, it means if there was a particular time selected and the Bible says that the plan was drawn up before the foundation of the world, you were known by God before the world was ever created. That's how it has to do with God's love for you. Lloyd-Jones says it means way back before the foundation of the world, before the world was ever made, before man was ever created, before time had ever come into existence, God planned His mighty and glorious way of salvation. He planned it in every detail. He planned it that at a given point in time, His Son should come into the world to make an atonement whereby salvation would be made possible. And Paul says the same thing in Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. I mean, think of it this way. If God knew you before you were ever born, and He planned salvation before the world ever was, as this verse says, 
then it means that God's love for you is eternal. And it's unchangeable if it's eternal. It's not like human love, which is impulsive and unchangeable. It means God knew about you. It means God's interested in you. And the Bible says He even wrote your name in the book of life. Again, Lloyd-Jones, he planned that Christ would die for us before we ever lived. What a gracious love. What a timely love. But that's not all. It's, it's also a vicarious love. Look at you at verse 6. It, it says, For while we were still helpless, there's the gracious part. At the right time, there's the, there's the timing part. Christ died for the ungodly. There's the, the vicarious part. It's for us. His death was for us. Who pair? It's, it's, it's on behalf of us. His death was on our behalf. It was, his death was in our place. Now this new truth is one of the most explicit and important in all of the New Testament. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Paul says, of whom I am chief. And he points here to the way he saves them which is a substitutionary death, a, a death for them in their place. Every time I hear the word vicarious, I think back to my ordination when I was asked about this word. I was still in seminary, about 32 years old, and my home church was the one who was ordaining me, so I had to drive back there. And the room was full of people because it was open to the congregation. So you write up your doctrinal statement, the, somebody quizzes you, and then you, you publicly are asked questions. Sometimes that's private, sometimes that's open. This one was open. So it was a room full of people, congregations there. And I was in the pulpit like I am right now with my doctrinal statement in front of me in front of about 11 or 12 arrogant, independent, fundamental Baptist preachers whose goal was way more to impress everybody else about their knowledge and while at the same time showing the audience that I had none. So it was not a friendly atmosphere. And I was coached by the pastor uh, who prepared me to expect that. And he tells me, look, if you get nervous... You don't know the answer to something. Just respond with, would you please repeat the question? That's your, that's your fail-sake. As the evening went on, I'd read my doctrinal statement, and then I would be open it up for questions. The doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of God, whatever it is. As the evening went on, I felt like I was, was doing pretty good. And one of the nicer brothers that was there threw me what, I, what I sh I'm sure he thought was a softball kind of, of question. He said, you said in your doctrinal statement you believed in the vicarious death of Christ. What does vicarious mean? And coming from the medical background, a completely different concept came into my mind. And from a theological standpoint, my mind went blank. And the more I tried to think, the blanker that it, it, it went. So I asked my fail-safe question to buy some time. I said, could you please repeat the question? And he did. And there was still nothing. So I asked the question again, could you repeat the question? And he said very slowly, what does vicarious mean? 
And I finally yielded. Uh, I said, I can't give you an answer. And Paul says it means exactly that right here in this verse. When you stand before God, not a bunch of puffed up men, and he places you under scrutiny for the right to enter heaven, not scrutiny for ministerial ordination, and he asks you, what right do you have to be here? Your response is, I yield, I have no answer. Or the right answer is what your children learn every single Sunday in Sunday school. Susie, what did you learn in Sunday school? Jesus, right? No matter what they learn, that's the answer that they give you. Jesus, that's the answer that you're to give in that, in that moment. God says that's the right answer. He is your vicarious substitute. He died for you. He took your place. And isn't it interesting that Paul chose that to describe God's love? I mean, if you were to point to something, one thing to describe the nature of your love for your spouse, your, your wife, your husband, or your family, what would it be? Or, or, or even God. I mean, what would you say exhibits the, the love of God, or describes the love of God? Would you start there? I mean, God chooses the death of Christ in your place. Not the incarnation. Not His leaving glory and coming to earth. Not the resurrection. Not the teaching of Jesus. Jesus taught them as an evidence that He loved them. Not His miracles or His healings. Not the fact that He had compassion on them or He fed the, the thousands. Not even heaven as an evidence of God's love or glorification. But His death. His vicarious death. His substitutionary death. This is how God demonstrates His love toward us. It's a gracious love. It's a timely love. It's a vicarious love. And it's Trinitarian love. This last one you have to look at the whole passage to see, but, but it's clearly there. Verse 5, which, which really is the on-ramp, talks about the Holy Spirit. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So there's one. And then in verse 8, but God demonstrates His own love toward us. There's the second member of the Trinity, or really the first one. God is expressing His own love toward us, and Christ is the one dying as an expression in, in verse 6. And so the entire Trinity is involved in expressing or describing the nature of God's love. There, don't get this idea that there's some difficulty between the Father and the Son that that the Son somehow has to plead with the Father in order to, to save people, like, like, like in Catholicism. God in the Old Testament, or, or God the Father, is, is, a, is a kind of a, a mean guy, a pretty bad idea, a, a bad guy. And so the Son has to approach the Father, but the Son's kind of tough himself. And so who better to get to the Son? Well, his mother. So you pray to Mary to get to Jesus, to get to God. You don't find any of that in the Bible. The Father sends the Son to be the to be the Savior of the world. The Father planned your salvation, the Son accomplishes your salvation, and the Spirit applies your salvation, and they all three love you in unique, in specific ways, in all gracious ways. All three members of the Godhead. Well, now remember why Paul is writing this. It's for your assurance. So how are we assured from God's love that's so gracious? 
that it's expressed toward the undeserving. It's because if God's love is this way, if it's totally based on Him, if it's while I was ungodly, if it was a, if it was a, a love that was planned, a, a love that, that, that wrote salvation's plan, if it was provided at just the right time, and, and if it was one that was for me in my place, then you should have absolutely nothing to fear. Because if it has absolutely nothing to do with you, then how could you ever lose it? I mean, sin was because of me, but salvation was in spite of me. And that salvation is an evidence of God's love. And it's a ground of my security and yours. Jan Boyce tried to express the greatness of God's love. He said someone did by, by trying to print up a little, a little card with a special arrangement of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You know the rest. So He writes the, the verse down this side of the card, and then out from it He gives a, gives a description, 12. He said, God, the greatest lover, so loved the greatest degree, the world, the greatest company, that He gave the greatest act, His only begotten Son, the greatest gift, that whosoever the greatest opportunity... Believeth, believeth the greatest simplicity in him, the greatest attraction, should not perish, the greatest promise, but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, the greatest possession. Have you experienced the greatest love ever known? Is it in your heart? Is there an evidence of it in there because of the Holy Spirit? When you're listening to this, does it describe what's, what's already in you? Well, if you haven't, you can today by coming to Jesus Christ. But you must come by faith alone, faith in, in His work alone. And, and you must trust in His work for you on your behalf. And you'll look there if you understand that there is nothing in you that could provide the answer. No matter how many times you ask God to repeat the question on Judgment Day, your answer now is, I yield. I, do, I have nothing to say, but I trust in your Son, and I come because of this love that you have for me. Let me pray. Oh, Father, the love, your love, love that's indescribable and yet described under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here and love that's understandable by the same work of the Spirit. And so I pray, Father, even this morning, I pray for, for, for anyone listening or will be listening or even in this gathering that's outside of Christ that has never tasted this love, maybe looks at it from, from the other side of the fence, I, I pray today they would experience this love.
for yielding and trusting in the work of Jesus Christ and Him alone. But I, but I also pray, and in particular for Christians, Lord, somewhere along the line they've forgotten. They've started to act on human examples of, of love. May you bring us back, Lord. May you humble us once again, and may we rejoice and revel in the love of God, your love that came to us through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.